Well, it's a warm welcome to everybody who's attending our very first edition of Rational Radio, the webinar version. I'm Alec Hogg. Well, let me talk to Dave Shapiro and to Gigi Alcock, uh, who are our in-studio, virtual studio guests. Dave, I, I just wanted to um, maybe start with you, and we can just pick up on the markets, and you can see uh, the way that let's, – let's look at the JSE first. Um, uh, the – the way that the JSE has been performing today, I've taken the stocks there uh, from our partners at Standard Bank on Unshared Trading, uh, the stocks that are the most heavily traded. And as you can see, a really good session for Sassel again, for MTN, uh, for Woolies, ABSA, Banks, Nedbank up uh, nearly 7%. So it's a strange old world that we're living in at the moment, Dave. You know, Alec, I was I've just looking at the market before we, we got here, before I uh, checked in, uh, logged in, um, we started the downfall around about January the 20th. That's when the dangers of the virus became known. And uh, from that time to March, late March, we dropped about 34%. Subsequent to that, we've recovered about 30%, and we re- continue our recovery. So we're still down on the year, maybe 13 or 14 percent, but the recovery has been quite intriguing and not everybody believes it. You know, there's still a lot of skeptics out there. There are are far more bears out there than there are bulls. But I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to position myself. And what we're seeing now is that either there's short covering or there's the belief that we're going to get over this a lot sooner than maybe everyone expected. In other words, slowly good news is starting to come through, more so than the very bad news that, that we've had. And that's a good sign. You know, I'm not going out there and telling everybody to just rush out and buy, this is it. But, you know, once the good news starts to come out, it's, it, it, it's always a good sign. You know, uh, Europe opening up. Likewise, the U.S. starting to open up and life trying to get back to normal. So understand that uh, this is perhaps the beginning of, uh, of, of, of normality returning and that how long it's going to take or ever we get to normal in our views, I don't know. But I, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled at where we are in markets at the moment. Dave, we looked a moment ago there at the Sassel uh, share price, which is now back over 70 rand. Uh, I've put on the screen from our partners at the Wall Street Journal their markets, and you can see the crude oil futures there. Obviously, this is the U.S. futures. That maybe, maybe let's um, uh, go on to uh, the the the, crew, uh, the Brent uh, futures because actually, I'm just going to turn off the webcams for a minute, if you don't mind, just to uh, just to so we can have a look at this a little bit more clearly. Um, on the futures, as you can see them there. The they've been they've been under pressure. It's twenty two dollars uh, at the moment. Um, and if we go back to say, what should we do, Dave? Year to date, uh, it's a bit embarrassing, I suppose, year to date. But it it came from sixty six dollars, so it's dropped by two thirds. So now why would that happen? And then Sassel's share price uh, actually have gone up from its worst levels. <laughs> You can't explain, Mark. And, and I think one of the reasons, even if we look at Sassel at these current prices, it's still probably 70% down uh, over the year. 
So we've come down from 290-300 to where we are at the moment. Um, so this is really a bounce from very, very oversold positions. And the company came out with a statement last week uh, reducing executive salaries uh, and also setting out a plan in which they hope to um, implement in order to to you know, buffer up their, their finances and get them through this very difficult period. But if you look through it, they're still, the balance sheet is still under pressure and there's still a lot of issues that lie ahead, particularly the low oil price and low chemical prices. So, um, I'm, I'm a bit cautious about the, you know, about the company and I'm still cautious about where they're going. But if you read analyst reports, they've got target prices in the, in the low 100s, you know, 120, 130 thereabouts and maybe, uh, they're, there are a lot of brave salt out there buying the share. But for me, it's still a little, a little too dangerous to get in at the moment, other than a punt. Well, it's interesting. On the screen now, we've got the price graph uh, of Sassel. And as you can see, in a one year, even at 70 Rand or 69.75, where it's trading right now, uh, it's still down 85% in the past year from yep. over 430 Rand. Gigi Alcock is also with us. Gigi, um, the, we've spoken a little about the formal markets. Let's talk about the informal markets. Uh, we did have that uh, discussion over the weekend that we're going from level five to level four uh, from Ebram Patel, the um, economic affairs minister. What was interesting in that was that he was talking quite a lot about the informal sector, uh, informal traders and so on. Was there enough in there to make you feel like we're getting on the right path again? Hi, Alec. Yeah, so I think what has happened is that um, when this whole thing, um, the first lockdown happened, they really thought about supermarkets and, and that's kind of where it ended and then suddenly realized um, there's a whole other world as well. So uh, I think that that realization and, and, and the um, ability to, to bring in that sector is, is, is important. Um, and if you look at that sector, I think there's basically winners and losers as well. Um, I think uh, the, um, they're suggesting that they'll allow the, oh, we need the final um, uh, uh, regulations, but the current thing is that uh, fast food outlets will be allowed to open, which is a massive sector of the informal economy. The rider is that they have to have deliveries, which is not a problem in a township because most of the fast food outlets are servicing the local suburb in walking distance, so they'll just have a little fan who will be going to deliver the quarter or the shisenyama or whatever it might be. So I think that that's going to be a really positive sector, both from a consumption perspective. I mean, we saw the uh, fresh produce market, their potato sales dropped by, I think, 30% um, with the closure of the fast food outlets and the veg traders, so farmers should benefit from that. Um, the Spaza Red sector, the kind of supermarket of Spazas are definitely benefiting from this. We've seen probably about um, around a 20% decline um, in mid-month, um, decline um, over and above the typical monthly decline. So I think if flowers, the Tiger brands or Unilever, whatever, you can anticipate between a 20 and 30% decline. Over probably the next six months, I guess. I mean, that's my, um, you know, for anyone who's servicing that sector, this, the, the, the Spazaret sector is definitely getting a lot more business. Um, because they're in the neighborhood, they offering the full range of products. You don't have to pay for transport. Um, and um, 
and uh, and and obviously the the risk of infection when you're in a taxi or a queue is is uh, minimised by walking to the closest supermarket. Uh, so I think also the the shop rights, pick and pays, etc., who are in the neighbourhood, so not in a mall, will, will definitely um, benefit at this time. So obviously not in the informal sector, but they're servicing that kind of grassy economy uh, much closer. I also think that the increase in the social grants means that um, the Gogo uh, and the mom are going to become the new breadwinner. You know, the, the other incomes have dropped off, whether people are in other informal businesses or formal businesses. So we've almost had a probably between 50% odd um, increase in social grants. They're paying 500 rand per recipient more, uh, a Gogo pension that gets about 1,650 rand a month and a social grant lady gets about um, 250 rand a child, average about two children per recipient. So that's a big jump. If you have 700 rand you're receiving, you're now getting an extra 500 rand and if you're earning 1,650 you also get another 500 rand. So. That's going to benefit the informal economy to a large extent, the spaza and the local outlets. Um, and uh, But what it also means within the family is suddenly the social grant recipient and the pensioner become the primary breadwinner and decision maker. It's, all, it's really interesting stuff in the way that you've integrated that into the, if you like, the formal economy. David, are there any winners from, the, given what happened over the weekend, what Gigi just said now about the, uh, higher spend that many unemployed or, or social um, uh, benefit uh, seekers are, are going to receive. Are there any benefits here for investors to look at, Mark, uh, parts of the market that might be worth examining? You know, we can go into this in a, in a global sense, but certainly the winners are winning. You know, those companies that uh, are still training at full capacity or certainly 80% or over 50% are, uh, are winners globally. You know, we're seeing tech companies, we're seeing pharmaceutical companies. And in South Africa, um, other than NASPERS and Process, I think the retailers that are, you know, picking up are either the food producers or alternatively the shop rights, the pick and pays, uh, spas and other companies like that where, um, you know, where you have seen an increase in activity. The only danger with some of those is that, uh, and I think we mentioned this last week as well, is that other aspects of their, um, you know, of their offerings are not there, which are slightly higher margin, the clothing side, um, tools, all other issues like that. Uh, and that's where they're missing out um, on, you know, builders' warehouse and things like that. But still, from a from a pure point of view of, of, of merchandise, of, of food, um, of course, we've seen and, you know, reportedly seen increases in, de in demand. And we're seeing it filling up in, in the fast food outlets as well. You know, once the announcement was made, you've seen famous brands and Spurs and other companies like that, um, you know, also uh, uh, attracting attention. Because they can at least now go back into making deliveries again after that period. I've got the growth point uh, table up on uh, in front of us here, Dave. And if you go back to growth point, which is our biggest property stock by far, over the last three years, it's down. Well, let's go in the last year. That probably gives a better in, in indication. It's down 45%.
you were talking before we came on air of some discussion that's going on between the property owners like Growth Point and the retailers. Can you enlighten us? Well, I, I haven't gone through the the full you know full details. I really glanced over it. But what's happened is, is that the property owners association and the REITs are trying to come to some kind of terms with uh, tenants. In other words, give them concessions for April. Maybe uh, give them a seventy percent discount. Or I can't, I can't remember the numbers exactly. But trying to to reach some kind of agreement over what rent they should pay and who's objecting completely are the clothing associations, you know, they don't want to pay anything, which would be the Fashinis, the Truworths, uh, Mr. Price's, I would assume, companies like that. And please, I'm just, I'm, I'm giving you examples of who they are, so I don't want to, I don't want to uh, specify any, in any individual company, but they're saying, no, this is a forced buyer, we've been forced to close down completely, we don't want to pay anything and therefore not pay. So, so there is a little bit, a, a bit of a spat going through how it's going to sort it out, I'm not sure. But Property companies have taken an almighty pounding uh, since the beginning of the year. And, of course, you know, if you look at it year on year, growth point, in, in, in effect, growth point over a year is down about 45%. But in general, property companies are down, you know, anywhere up to 60 70% as rentals uh, are reduced. You know, as companies find problems, and also I don't know if you can pick it up from there as well. You know, from the chart that you're in at the moment, but not only rentals, but also concerns about vacancies and concerns about where this is all leading. So, a sector that led us up in 17 and 18, 2017 and 18, has really, uh, you know, coming under pressure for no for no problem. You know, it, 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 it's a debatable point. But uh, having a very, very tough sector at the moment. We're going to be bringing in Professor Alan Whiteside in just a moment to talk about COVID-19 and, and the latest state of play there. But before we do that, Stuart, have we got any questions? Thanks, Alec. Uh, yeah, there's one for David and yourself, Alec. Um, this is, it's from Peter Bedell. He says, I do know that you guys like the US tech stocks, which I embrace. What about the converging techs like Ping and Health and Alibaba Health stocks? These are flying and Tencent wants to list WeDoc from the Hong Kong, Hong Kong exchange soon. Surely these healthcare conversion tech stocks must be a no-brainer. Absolutely. Should I answer that, Alex? Of course, David. Um, Alibaba, it's this, this process was made for them in the sense that uh, they first out. And, and therefore are able to access goods and uh, they're expanding rapidly uh, or trying to expand rapidly into other areas outside of China. But I think I think the two sectors and, and uh, you know, that one has to look at is obviously the healthcare side and the other is on the tech side. Both of those have come out uh, very, very strongly from this. They've accelerated what was already in motion. Uh, it's not that this is new, but I think healthcare, public healthcare, pharmaceutical companies, I think there's going to be a new, you know, new light uh, shot on these particular sectors. We can expand on this a little later. I know that we, you know, we, we're, we're a little short of time, or um, later on, if we have the time, we can start to talk about individual companies. But it's all aspects of that, including, I would imagine, the Meditech. In other words, companies like Philips and other business like Medtronic, who are making medical devices. So I think those sectors are going to stand out. And uh, I don't know enough about Ping Yang, um, you know, to 
to really comment in a in, in a professional way, but but I'm I'm absolutely sure that you know, in companies like that will start to prosper. Well, uh, Ping An Insurance, I've got the graph up on the um, on the screen right now. This is the company that owns Ping An Health. Ping An Health, I don't think, is separately listed. It's 25% owned by Discovery, 75% owned by Ping An Insurance, and Discovery is. Uh, in, in their latest set of uh, results, I think it was their interims, they were explaining, Adrian Gore, the chief executive, was explaining how Ping An Health is going just gangbusters. The last uh, amount or, or the premium income there was 25 billion rand. Now they're looking at 250 billion rand. It's just, it's just extraordinary what these companies are doing. If you look back uh, through at the opportunity that Ping An Insurance uh, must be presenting, I think that uh, the the uh, person who posed the question has really found something very, very interesting for the rest of us to go and investigate. So thanks for that one, Stu. One more question before we go to Alan. Hi, Alex. Sorry, it's just Peter says Alibaba Health and Ping An Health are both listed. I'm not sure where, though. He just says they are both listed, but there's no more questions at the moment. Okay, let me go and uh, let me just, uh, while we're doing that, I'll see if the Wall Street Journal... Does there they are? Of course they are, Peter. My apologies. And in fact, they're even over the counter in the United States. So that's quite interesting. We can then have a look at Pingan Healthcare and uh, calculate. Wow! Look at that graph. Can you? See, I hope you guys can see it there. But David, can you see that on your screen? It's gone from sixty-three dollars in in mid-March to wow, hundred and fourteen dollars now. Sure. I remember in the uh, in the announcement as well in the discovery uh, announcement that discovery did say that it uh, that the Chinese government is picking up all of the costs of COVID-19. So I guess that gives you an indication of ping on. Thanks, Peter. You've given us all something to look at, not least the discovery shareholders. You'll be looking at this with uh, quite a lot of interest, given it's it could be your your uh, your equivalent of. The NASPAS 10 cent story. Anyway, we'll get on to that in a moment. I'm going to now pick up uh, with Professor Alan Whiteside. Alan, I hope you can hear us loud and clear. I've put up onto the screen. Can you hear you? Can you hear me? Perfectly. Wonderful. Lovely to have you, Alan. Um, I've put up the Johns Hopkins University latest data. And it was very interesting reading your report that you put out every week. Uh, which you told me the other day you spent seven hours in, in compiling. The first one of these was done on the 4th of March. And maybe, just for fun, tell us uh, the the comparative data at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I mean, basically, we were talking about uh, under a million. Uh, the U.S. had virtually none. And now I need to pull up my, uh, my diagram. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Yeah. So the 4th of March, 93,000 cases worldwide, um, United States 149, the United Kingdom 86, South Africa none. What I liked from that was uh, you said in your report that Spain had 222, now it's got over 200,000. So it really has been an explosion. But, Alan, I guess the real question that everybody's asking, there are two things, really. The antibody test is the first thing. When everybody can get back to normal again, in inverted commas, if there's ever going to be a normal again, you, in, you're based in the UK, and there has been quite a lot of discussion around this subject. What's the state of play there? Well, 
We're sitting on the edge of our chairs waiting for a an announcement. Uh, we haven't got one yet. Uh, it seems to have slightly fallen off the radar uh, in the UK at any rate. I, I, by the way, one thing I will say about this whole epidemic is I've just become aware of how insular all the reporting is around the world. If you go to CNN, you get stories from America. If you go to the BBC, you get stories from Britain. And it's just incredible. We don't know what's going on around the world in the research uh, area. So I believe that there are people working at the Karolinska Institute, at um, Louis Pasteur Institute in Paris, in all the universities in the States and in the UK, but we just don't know what's going on. You know, uh, um, my colleague Linda van Tilburg, who's based in London, had a wonderful interview with Professor um, Stu. Just correct me if I'm wrong here, Adrian Hill uh, from Oxford University. They're the guys who do the uh, have been doing Ebola uh, vaccine investigations, and and they've now been given 20 million pounds by the British government to accelerate the vaccine production. There, he says they'll have a vaccine before the end of the year, or he he reckons that well they've started the human trials already. And yet everywhere else that we read, Alan, and this is your game. I mean, you're a professor, you chair of the global health policy in, in at Waterloo in Canada. You've got all the credentials from here to next week. Why are we being told it's going to take at least 18 months by other people to bring to get a vaccine, whereas uh, someone like Professor uh, Hill from uh, Oxford is saying he might have it this year? Well, I think we have to be very cautious with the vaccine because uh, there are so many stages before you can roll it out. Uh, first of all, you need to find out if what you've got as a candidate is safe. So you inject a very few human subjects after you've done all the rats and mice and monkeys and all the rest of it. Because if it's a vaccine, if it's a, something you put in somebody's arm and they fall over dead, you don't want to be doing that. Equally, you don't want people to have severe side effects. So you've got the stage one, which is trials. Then you've got to check whether or not it's going to be effective. Will it actually protect against people getting uh, covid or any disease, and the only way to do that is to have them exposed to that disease and to see that they don't get it. Um, it's a real problem with something as deadly as this one. So it's a long process. Uh, the shortest I think we could expect is 18 months. Uh, sorry, not 18 months, eight months. I do actually think we could see something by the end of the year. There is so much money going into this. And, of course, we're building off the really amazing uh, work that was done uh, unsuccessfully as yet in looking at AIDS vaccines. We don't have an AIDS vaccine, but there's so much work being done in that area. Mm. Okay. Uh, did you get a chance to, coming back to South Africa, and, and clearly you, you know South Africa very well. This is your, your home country, I guess, if you were to go back. Uh, Professor Salim Karim's uh, presentation that he presented to the country uh, a week or so ago, Yes, it was outstanding. What is absolute it? model of, of uh, a clear uh, bit of science communicated to the to to the South African public? Yeah, I've, I've looked at it a few times. What is it telling you? As a you can interpret these things for us a whole lot better than we can, I guess. Well, I'm afraid, but it's not really very good news because what it's telling us is we're in for quite a long haul. I, I, having said that, of course, um, the, the question is. To what extent is this disease going to spread in our populations in South Africa? And there's a really excellent piece in today's Daily Maverick, uh, written by Max Price of UCT, who was of UCT, saying, well, why haven't we had an epidemic? Because let's face it, with a relatively small number of cases, uh, it is confounding. 
Uh, he suggests that we're just on the cusp of moving into having a serious epidemic. What Slim's saying is we've got some advantages. Um, for example, our HIV experience, not just in terms of the science, but also in terms of our response, community workers out in the field, means we can mobilize. We have got science there to help us with that. Um, and he's saying we've got a very small window of opportunity in which to do it, because once this takes off, as you can see from the Johns Hopkins graph, it is really scary. So is Max Price on the money? We'll see, won't we? I think he is. I think he is. Sadly, I think he is. I think it is just a matter of time. I mean, the other country where I work a lot is uh, Swaziland, where they've just got 59 cases. And it's really hard, and we saw this again, um, I have to come back to my extensive experience in the AIDS epidemic. It's really hard to shout, the house is burning, and that's how Slim ended his presentation, or the forest is burning, uh, when nobody can see the flames. In fact, they can't even see the smoke. Mm -hmm. So that's the real challenge for us uh, in South Africa moving forward. Now, I think we also have another advantage, which is something you guys will remember, and that was Clem Sunter and his amazing scenario work back in the 1987 and on, which I think had a huge impact on the transition in South Africa. So we have got the ability to develop these sorts of tools. We have got the ability to communicate them to people. Uh, we've probably got the political will and to a degree that we've never had before. Uh, let's see what happens. Gigi, I'd love you to come in here because you, you do uh, work in the area where people are still not uh, quite believing it. A little bit like uh, Alan said a moment ago, uh, that the fire is burning but you don't see any flame yet. Yes, I, mean, I do think it varies, and I think one of the mistakes we're making, Alec, is that we're looking at the township as one uniform space, and we see all these dramas showing Kailicha, Deep Slot, Alexandra townships. If you look at SA Household Survey 2018, it shows that only 12% of our population live in informal dwellings. 82-odd percent of our population live in formal dwellings. So... So I think we have to look at that differently. And, uh, you know, we have others' perception based on, in, uh, I think you read Factfulness, there's this thing of historical bias. And we have this historical bias about looking at our population. So if we look at the shack settlements, in essence, it's almost impossible to restrict people. And people in those spaces are kind of, um, if you look at the priority of risks, the priority of, of dying of hunger and getting other things, and, you know, other dramas is much higher than COVID, so there's less of a concern about it, if, if that's the term. If we look at the more traditional township spaces, places like Soweto and uh, Umlazi and Kukuleto, much more formal homes in yards and um, what I'm hearing is that places like Umlazi, people are quite afraid because there have been incidents um, and, and, and so it really does vary, and I think that this is one of the problems with kind of a uniform lockdown application, is that you have to take into account, do you, do you uh, lock down by streets, do you lock down by um, house, do you lock down, you know, and how do you do this? So, but, but overall, there's quite a split mix of township areas, uh, especially someone from Soweto today, and he was saying, oh, um, they're afraid. They're very aware that it's suddenly it's not just something that's in um, high-income people or travellers. That it's now in townships. Uh, I spoke to someone in Amlazi over the weekend saying 
feeling. I think once the once you start knowing of, of someone in the neighborhood or someone's friend of someone, and these are small communities, tight communities, the word starts spreading um, fast. So there is that, those sense of risks there. But I just think that the application of, of risk um, mitigation needs to look differently at different kind of segment, segments within that classy environment. Alan? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there. Um, it, it is uh, going to dep- it, it's going to vary hugely across the uh, country. This isn't like a swarm of locusts which descends on your crops, as is happening in East Africa at the moment, and just takes out all the crops. This is going, uh, selective. It's going to come in and it's going to uh, hit some areas worse than others. Um, I do think that the South African. I, I, again, I have to say, I think that South Africa is really uh, powerfully in a powerful position to respond to the epidemic because of our experience with HIV and AIDS in exactly the same way as some of the Asian countries have responded incredibly well because of their experience with SARS. So, yes, I do think that uh, it's a very bleak situation, but it's not without uh, hope. My real worries are the little country is the little country of Eswatini or, and Lesotho, which hasn't even reported a case yet. But then they're busy fighting over Timothy Dubai. If you if you have a look at this and and uh, uh, Stu, we'll we'll we're, if there's any questions, just jump in. But Alan, if you can have a look at this uh, and interpret it for us. This is from Worldometers.info, who've got a fantastic uh, database on the whole COVID-19 issue, as well as uh, tracking individual countries. Just to go from the top, it tells us that we've, uh, this was last night, 4,793 cases, 90 deaths. But that's the logarithmic scale of what's going on in South Africa. The, the curve has been seriously flattened, according to this. But is, is what Max Price is saying, and you have to respect him as an academic, and presumably other people, that... When the lockdown ends, that flattening of the curve is actually not going to stay that way. This epidemic is not even four months old. We don't know. Okay. We honestly don't know. I think it depends on how the uh, – well, first of all, I totally agree with the um, – GG uh, is stands for what? Sorry, is it great? It's just GG. It's just he'll tell you the story in a moment of how it came. <laughs> it's going to vary from place to place around the country, um, and you know you won't see a, 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 an homogenous epidemic uh, sweeping across South Africa. It'll very much depend on, and it'll depend on national, subnational responses as well. Um, so the, are you, are you I, thinking I, those daily? In about two weeks' time, and I'll okay. be able to give you an answer. Alan, just, uh, I just, think we, we just, have a chance. Just the last point here, if you have a look again on your screen there, daily new cases, they, they appeared to peak there on the 23rd of April at 318, uh, but then came down, but yesterday uh, was up 247, which is... One of the highest, what, one, two, three, four, fifth highest yeah. so far. So it would speak to what you're saying. Uh, we haven't seen the worst of this by, by some way. I think that's true. What is also fascinating is if you're like me and you spend time looking at these data points, you get these waves of epidemics where they go up and down and up and down, and you can't read too much into one day's figures. Uh, certainly in the UK we've seen that uh, 
but we are looking at the trend. Um, I, and I, I look at the daily figures with interest deaths is the, is the key one. By the way, we need to be also grateful in South Africa. We can measure some things, which you can't do in the rest of Africa. We've got a good idea of what's going on. In the UK, for any of you who watch the UK numbers, know that uh, they only report deaths in hospital. Everything else is lagged by two or three weeks. Okay, let's just uh, call that up uh, here. Gigi, do you want to tell, there we go, 157, 21,000 deaths in the UK. So comparatively those are speaking. Just in the hospital. So we believe that in community care, we're looking at a, a very much more serious, I mean, in the community and particularly in the uh, care homes, we're looking at some serious uh, issues. Stu, any questions for Alan before we bring Chris Yelland in? Uh, no questions. I have just a comment from Peter that says Moderna also says there might be a vaccine before year end. That's, that's well, delighted to hear that. Alan Whiteside, Professor, thank you for joining us today. On, thank you. Uh, I'm going to stay in the seminar, but I'm going to duck off the webcam. Cheers. Perfect. Cheers. <laughs> uh, and before we, we do bring Chris in, Gigi, you've got to tell Alan and the rest of us how you got the name. <laughs> I'll be very quick. Uh, I was, uh, my parents were political activists and brought us up in a, in a mud hut with no running water, electricity in a Zulu village. Uh, and uh, I was, uh, in essence, named after GG Trucks because the government uh, bulldozers that were bulldozing people's homes were at a registration of GG. And, and in Zulu, you're either named after a characteristic, and I'd like to think the characteristic was the power and invincibility of the uh, the DG tracks, but it was more the time of these cuts that DG. So I was uh, named after a government uh, track. <laughs> well, there we go, Alan Whiteside. I'm sure you'll appreciate that as well. Chris Yelland. Uh, Chris, uh, and, uh, good to see you here. I know your webcam is working uh, because we saw you flashing on the screen a little bit. Uh, Chris is our go-to guy when it comes to anything to do with energy, and you've written a, a fabulous piece today. Just after you wrote uh, some pretty glowing reports about Andre mm. de Reiter at Eskom, you're now uh, explaining that they could, be, they could be having their Volkswagen moment. And, and what I mean by that was Volkswagen maintained that they were not putting out the, the, the diesel carbon emissions that uh, – or sorry, they, they, they falsified their carbon emission figures. From what you wrote today, Eskom appear – to at least be accused of having done the same at their Kendall Power Station. Tell us the story, Chris. Yeah, well, it's not me. It's not me that's accusing them. Uh, uh, but in fact, the the regulatory authority, which is the Department of uh, Environment, uh, Forestry, and Fisheries, uh, who issued a uh, so-called compliance notice uh, on the 10th of December uh, last year. Uh, after engaging with Eskom to get all the facts, uh, they finally issued this compliance notice. And in the compliance notice, uh, the uh, department makes some very, very harsh findings, uh, which I think one's got to take seriously. I must say that for many years, the department has been a very slack regulator, in my, in my view, and has allowed, to get, allowed Eskom uh, to get away with a lot of things would be ostensibly against the law um, and to give them every benefit of the doubt and every opportunity to do the right thing. Uh, but uh, finally, this compliance notice came out. Of course, it was hidden from the public. 
uh, and not accessible to the public. So the criticism by the regulator was not uh, public. Uh, but a uh, very highly regarded uh, NGO, a legal company called the Center for Environmental Rights, the CER, based in Cape Town, submitted a application for this information under the PIA Act, the, Pro the Promotion of Access to Information Act, and uh, it, it, they recently received this um, compliance notice, and it has in, then come out into the public domain. And it really is shocking, in my view. Uh, the revelations are, are truly shocking because they point to falsification of records um, and uh, really uh, misleading the regulator, submitting information to the regulator that is untrue and misleading. And that is a, a very serious offense in law. Uh, and would, uh, if, if convicted, uh, we would subject uh, Eskom to a fine uh, of up to 10 million rand and imprisonment of up to up to 10 years, I think it is. Now, in fact, you can't imprison Eskom, uh, but uh, I presume you could imprison certain officials at Eskom uh, if they were personally responsible. It does appear as though Eskom got away with this because we had load shedding. Uh, now that there's no load shedding, I wonder if that suddenly opened this can of worms because to see a government department trying to close down at least a couple of the generators at Eskom because they are not complying with carbon emissions would have been impossible during the period when we were having load shedding. Or would it have been, Chris? Is there enough evidence here to say, uh, to heck with load shedding, you've got to close down the, the Kendall Power Station? Well, they issued this compliance notice which required Eskom to shut down two generators. This is two times 600 megawatt, 1200 megawatt, you know, in, on the 10th of December, which was in the middle of load shedding. Uh, that was the time when we had load shedding. So, uh, what has happened since we've had this lockdown, which has eased the problem, but uh, to answer your question, no, they did issue this during load shedding and demand <laughs> that Eskom shut down these generators within 30 days. Now, unfortunately or fortunately for Eskom, whichever way you look at it, uh, that is just the start of a very uh, painful and protracted process. So uh, Eskom immediately, uh, within a short space of time, lodged an objection uh, to this um, notice. Uh, and asked for an extension of the 30 days till the end of January. Uh, so they had until uh, the 10th of January to shut down these generators, um, but they uh, appealed and asked the minister to relent and give them some extra time to respond. So it was extended until the end of January. And uh, since then, in fact, the compliance notice uh, has been put on hold by the minister, that is Barbara Creasy, uh, whilst they consider Eskom's objection. So Eskom is objecting to this compliance notice, uh, and the minister will need to consider those objections carefully, I'm sure, uh, based on the needs of the country and uh, the impact that this would have. Uh, but the bottom line is there's a weighing of, of the interests of public health and the safety and the lives of people and communities and workers in the Pumalanga area have to be weighed against the uh, economic impacts of shutting down uh, you know, two generators at a time when there may be shortages. Right now there are no shortages, but uh, there could have been shortages and there may still be shortages in the future. Such an interesting question. Uh, Stu, won't you just explain exactly how 
uh, those who are on the webinar can submit their questions. Thanks, Alec. Uh, yes, so just on the control panel on your right-hand side of your screen, eh, there's a little questions drop-down menu. Uh, if you write them in there, I'll pick them up, or Alec will pick them up, and we'll pass them across. Alec, there's just two comments. I'm, I suppose it goes on from Vitsa Post. He says, so Barbara Creasy is finally getting strict with the department's mandate. And then he also says, will this respiratory disease not trump load shedding? Just, just two comments. That, that, it's so interesting, Chris, because it's almost like the country is moving into a different mindset. On the one hand, you've got the the obvious economic dangers of of uh, what we're going through now with COVID-19, but you can you can extrapolate that into Eskom, which is polluting, uh, but doing so while providing us with electricity. How are you reading it? You see, you mustn't think that this um, pollution is something new. Uh, nor must you think that uh, Eskom's failure to comply with the environmental laws of South Africa is something new. It's been going on for years. And for years, people have been dying prematurely as a result of pollution, air pollution, uh, the burning of coal by Eskom's power station. So it's not something new. Interestingly, uh, just a, a comment that I find very ironic um, and, and puzzling. Um, you know, if... By the way, just to, 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 to contextualize, a, a study conducted or commissioned by Eskom itself has concluded that there are a, more than 300 premature deaths per year as a result of the burning of coal by Eskom and Eskom power stations. Uh, that was done by Eskom itself. And independent uh, studies uh, put the figure higher than 2,000 deaths per year as a result of the burning of coal. Now, Let's now move to nuclear power station, Kuburg power station. I want to tell you very clearly that if Eskom had one-tenth of 300, that is 30 deaths per annum, resulted from radiation at Kuburg, the regulator would shut down Kuburg tomorrow. But coal gets away with 10 times that, according to Eskom, and a much higher level of deaths, uh, according to independent studies. Uh, but it's 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 part of the course. Nothing happens. Uh, nothing is shut down. It's been going on for years like that. So there seems to be two different standards being set. Uh, and I guess really it's simply because coal has been doing this for the last 100 years, not only in South Africa but around the world. <laughs> uh, but the world is now moving to a cleaner place and a safer place. And let's hope uh, that Eskom uh, picks up the queue from the rest of the world and embarks on a just energy transition. Chris Yelland, who is the Managing Director of EE Business Intelligence. Chris, thanks for joining us today. David Shapiro, you've got no doubt some thoughts of this, maybe balancing the, the, the journal here from an economic perspective. Uh, we are going to be losing Gigi in a moment. So, Gigi, thanks for your contribution today. I know you've got another commitment you've got to pop off to. Dave, your thoughts? And, you know, the one thing that, that I've been talking about as well, we've got oil now uh, almost at zero. You know, if you look at uh, or heading towards zero, which in a way is starting to challenge clean energy. Um, and, and the big question is what happens globally now where oil is so cheap? You know, do we start ignoring uh, renewables? And the question is no. 
Absolutely not. I don't think the world is going to go backwards in that respect. And I still think that ESG, which is environment, social governance, are going to be very, very big, uh, you know, big issues and continue to be. Uh, it, it was, as we went into the new year, um, it, you know, it was one of the big subjects. So I think that, uh, what, what, you know, whatever Chris has brought up now is going to continue. We are not going to let businesses like Eskom or any, even of the, uh, uh, the burning of, of fossil fuel, um, you know, to get away with it. I still think that renewables and the whole question of a clean environment is still going to be a very topical question, despite the fact that uh, energy prices, whether it's coal or whether it's oil, are so low at the moment. So, you know, don't, don't just brush it aside. Well, the Wall Street Journal agrees with you, David. Dysfunction in the oil market intensified Tuesday, yesterday, sending the uh, – sorry, today is Tuesday, isn't it? Sending the most popularly traded U.S. oil price to its lowest level since at least 1986. And there on your screen, you have what is called the WTI futures price, and that's sitting now just over $10 a barrel. Well, if that's the case, David – Eskom is not the only one who's been polluting for years. Sassel's been doing the same thing. Are, are, we, are we nuts by being invested in Sassel? From that point of view, and, uh, and I think both you and uh, I have gone through this before, uh, where we got an irate uh, listener saying, you know, when we were recommending Sassel or talking about it uh, before the issues that are, are, are now prominent were known, uh, and we were challenged on this very fact. And I think companies like this are going to have to clean up their act, uh, regardless of the low price of oil. So, yeah. I think I don't say we're mad in in, in looking at Sassel, but uh, certainly we have to keep an eye on these on their emission standards. You know, we can't just ignore it. And and Alec, we're going into a different world. You know, it's it's. I, I think what's so interesting about this is that when we come out of this, I think not only is it going to be emissions, but uh, we're going to have to judge how how businesses behaved uh, during this era. Um, it's not something new. It's uh, it's something that's going to be discussed. You know, how did you perform um, during this uh, COVID nineteen era? Did you look after your staff? Did you look after your product? Uh, a lot of questions are going to to come up, and uh, so I think we're going into a slightly different society uh, than the one that we left. Isn't that just the the reality? But this whole story that Chris was. Uh, talking about and and the 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 point you've raised about ESG environmental social and government governance rather they they're so aligned because what Chris is saying is that even although we were in load shedding in December one of the government departments the environmental department of Barbara Creechy was prepared to close down 1200 megawatts of Eskom power because they continuously broke the law effectively by by pushing out uh, dirty uh, well uh, dirty stuff into the into the air pollution into the air now that's that's unusual for any country uh, which is I, I guess if she'd closed them down she would have had riots on her doorstep no doubt but but maybe the world we're going into those are the trade-offs you have to make we're not going to tolerate it uh, no one's going to tolerate it and uh, I think I think fines or jail, whatever it is, I think uh, you know will be the order of the day. So um, listen, I, I, I'm glad she didn't close down in December, and I hope she doesn't do it 
do it at the moment, but I think we have to be conscious of it because it brings other kind of viruses or brings other kind of illnesses, which, uh, you know, we're just brushing aside. And I like uh, Chris's uh, comparison of, of, you know, God forbid something happened down in, um, in, in the Cape at Kuburg, um, yet yeah, there would have been an outcry, and yet we just spill out this awful, awful air. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's one thing that's also come through is the satellite pictures of what the world looks like now uh, compared with uh, a few months ago and, and what pollution does. So we're very conscious of, of the images. So, you know, I'm very strong on this. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very outspoken or I'm very passionate about it as well. It's, you don't want to leave. Uh, you know, you don't want to leave this to your children. You don't want to leave a, a, a polluted environment uh, to your grandchildren, great great grandchildren. So, yeah, I don't think this is something we can just brush aside, even with oil at virtually zero. I wonder if the president was 25, how things, <laughs> how different things would be. But uh, I want you to, to 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 give us some ESG investments to consider, or given that we're always investing, is always long-term, to, to start looking at maybe the non-Sassels. Obviously, Eskim isn't listed, but the non-Eskims. But first, Stuart, have you got any feedback from the people, the dozens of people I see who are on this webinar today? Thanks, Eric. Yes, it's a question on this new clean energy concept. Uh, Peter and Witzer pick up on it. And I just want to know, is it not... Is Elon Musk not on the money and shouldn't we be watching his moves with this whole move shift and things like Tesla to invest in, et cetera? David? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, 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 and I think people want to be associated with, uh, with Elon Musk regardless. Um, they'll do anything to buy his, his motor car. You know, I mean, his share price from the beginning of the year is up something like 78%. You know, whether it's justified in terms of how we look at the market on a historical basis, on, on, on whatever basis you want to look at it, uh, probably not. But I think it's people buy it. And, you know, I always use the example in the same way as someone would buy Man United shares. Why would you ever do that? You know, you're never going to get a dividend out of them or a Newcastle or Arsenal share, etc. You just want to identify with what they represent. And I think businesses like this uh, are going to be, um, you know, are, uh, like Tesla, I think you want to identify. And people who buy his motor cars want to identify, look what I'm doing to save the environment, you know, to have clean air as well. So I think it, it, it's a very strong subject. We saw it with Beyond Meat, you know, where you've got plant-based plant meat uh, coming through as well, although I see it's, it, it's, it's, it's finding a lot of competition. But understand the movement, you know. I'm not trying to put them into a pigeonhole in terms of good old CFA, uh, you know, the way that we looked at companies and the way that we rationalized about companies, but it's a movement that people want to be identified. I just, there's one company we are looking at very, very carefully and that we're putting clients into uh, simply because it's generating cash. It's done. It's in Florida in the U.S. It's called Next Era, um, Next Era uh, Energy. And it just fits into it, it, it. You know, I like to find just one company um, that that we can look at as. Uh, as yeah, it's all one word, I think, Alex. Yeah, okay. Uh, next oh, there era. we go. Next era uh, energy. Got it. Yeah, okay. Number three. There. Yeah. So that's one that that we've identified. But I'm sure you can find others that will fit into the same category. Wow, David, if you'd got in there uh, just a couple oh, of no. weeks ago, I'm sure that's what you guys did. Huh? That's the. 
Did you buy it once 180? When it was at the top. It's getting back. It's Before getting back. And what was it about Next Era that you liked so much? It's 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 uh, simply because of uh, its wind and solar. It's a, and, and it's and it's a very profitable business that is developing into that era, you know, into that uh, era as well. Um, so um, in that arena, um, it, it's worth taking a much closer look at as well. And uh, and I think you know, it's clean air. It's clean energy. In a state where, um, and, and what's, what's interesting is that they're turning it into you know, a profitable business. They are generating cash and of course reinvesting in the same, in the same, uh, um, region. So uh, have, um, have a closer look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? I'm just, um, everybody who's on this webinar is a BizNews premium subscriber. So you do get access to everything that I'm showing you here, Wall Street Journal. And it really is a phenomenal website. Uh, as you can see there, uh, we've been going through the graphs, but uh, the P.E. ratio of 33, David thinks that's very cheap. Market cap of 120 billion, David. You're not uh, – um, it, it's certainly – well, it's got a dividend yield of 2.3%, I suppose. So they're at least paying dividends already. So uh, you, you, And then there's more detail and net income, 400 million in the most recent quarter and, and, and. Yep, thank you, Mr. Shapiro. Uh, I wanted to look at Beyond Meat as well because I love their burgers, yeah. Dave. I, I I don't know if you've got if you've got into into that food yet. Wow. It's just it's 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 actually nicer than beef burgers. And I mean, I never thought I'd ever even uh, a carnivore uh, from Newcastle. You know that, that we didn't know much about anything apart from meat over there. Uh, to think of a of a of a non-meat burger, uh, it looks quite. It looks the graph doesn't look too uh, too too concerning and over two hundred dollars, not one hundred dollars. No, and look, I I I like what they represent. You know, I like the fact that um, they reckon that farming um, causes. And please don't 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 you know don't attack me on this. This is the whole uh, rationale behind plant-based food. Is that you know farming. Um, feeding the cows and the emissions from cows and all all the different arguments, the abattoirs, etc. You know uh, what they do to clean air um, is, is is quite destructive. So um, the whole argument is against uh, you know farming animals and rather eating plants, which they deem as much healthier. And what they've tried to do is to show you that it is quite tasty. I I love it. It's double the cost of a burger. But uh, it doesn't matter. It's it's plant based, and uh, you know you can get virtually any kind of food you can. You know, for for the for the Jewish crowd who can't eat milk and meat together, um, for the first time the rabbis can have a cheeseburger. You know, this is uh, perfectly kosher. <laughs> so, Fantastic. I mean, that's a marketing uh, gimmick, of, well, uh, uh, slogan at least, sell to the rabbis. Stu, we're coming to the end of our show, but do we have any questions, comments? Uh, thanks. Uh, just a comment from Beats again. He says, the EU is looking to get to the point where they boycott products made with fossil fuels, which will most likely see a big drive towards renewables. Uh, just a comment from him. And then he says, on next area, he says, they do still have some fossil fuel stations, but it's got a clear mission to move steadily into full renewables. That's his comment on next area. Fantastic. Well, 
David, uh, on the JSE, is there anything that is clean energy? Um, or next gen? No, we're still a little bit of an old economy <laughs> uh, stock market. You know, we're still mining and uh, those kind of things. But it, regardless, um, it is it is a factor that's going to influence the way that people. Alec, the big point, and this came from BlackRock, is that you don't want to invest in a company where um, your shareholders or the investors in, um, you know, uh, sorry, at a meeting, attack you for that investment. You know, where you're sitting around a table and the BlackRock investors come to you and they said, you know, they've stated that they will not avoid any business like that. You know, any business where they do not have a clean air or, or strong ESG policies and that. So you as an investment manager are going to find yourself under considerable pressure if you invest in businesses that do not adhere to those kind of standards. David Shapiro, as always, giving us the latest on what's going on in the investment world, not just today, but looking into the future. ESG, he's been banging that drum for a while now. Uh, someone else who's banging that drum is Hendrik de Toy from the new company called 91. Uh, it's the old Investec Asset Management. He's, in fact, on the World Economic Forum's global team that looks after ESG. And we're banging a drum for creativity. I hope you've enjoyed our rational radio today. Coming to you in lockdown, kind of. We're allowed, Dave. We're allowed back at work on Friday because we're an internet publishing media company. Yep, we're right there. Uh, are you allowed out yet uh, or are you still locking down? No, I'm too old. I'm, I'm in complete lockdown. <laughs> My life's <laughs> oh well, uh, I'm we, enjoying this. I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite comfortable here. I think we Good might. Technology and everything. Uh, we, we'll certainly have, uh, we'll certainly be doing this again next week, and uh, probably on Monday though, rather than than this uh, Tuesday, knocked out by the public holiday. But thanks again, David. Your your wisdom and support. Uh, and and uh, very kind sharing to the public of South Africa, I can tell you, is just so appreciated. And and of course, Asset Biz News and and me as your friend, I really am thankful that uh, that you give of your time so willingly. So thanks again, and thanks for uh, for joining us. There were I think just over just more than five dozen people who are on the uh, on the webinar right now, which we didn't want to open it up to the full community of Biz News, um, because that would have been a little bit crazy. Uh, but we, this is something for the Biz News premium subscribers, adding a little bit of value and bringing in a little bit of, uh, we hope, interactivity uh, into our processes, because that's really what it's all about, isn't it, in uh, the whole way that one engages with the community. We will be, be putting together the recordings uh, of this, this webinar and, of course, the normal rational radio onto audio as well. It'll be on the site uh, pretty soon. From me, Alec Hogg, and uh, all of our guests today, thank you for joining us. Stu, any last words? I uh, know that's it. Thanks a lot, Alec. As you said, we'll get these up live as soon as possible on our owner and the website with some transcriptions. But thanks again for your time.